Good day. Welcome to your favorite place, the trendy place. This is the Trend Podcast with Justin A. Williams, and I am here to bring you awesome content from all across the spectrum that is meant to inform, excite, and most of all, keep you trendy. If you like a podcast where the unexpected should be expected, then the trend is a podcast for you. We have a great show for you today. Thank you for joining us. We are better when we trend together. Just a disclaimer, the views expressed today do not reflect the views of New York Trend Media. Guests are free to speak their minds unfiltered and uncensored. We're here as a place of dialogue, no more and no less. So we have a great guest today. Her name is Valerie White, and she serves as the executive director of the LISCNYC. Valerie is responsible for advancing a platform of racial and economic equity by building on 3.1% billion in LISC NYC investments to spur affordable housing, economic development, health equity, and workforce development in underserved neighborhoods. In this role, Valerie leads a team in developing a vision and advancing strategic policies and programs that foster equity and inclusion in disinvested communities. Very powerful word, disinvested, something we definitely want to go over. In addition to her extensive professional experience, Valerie also serves as an advisory board member of the Fordham Urban Law Center, director on the Fordham Law Alumni Association, and board member of the BRIC Brick Arts Media in Brooklyn. Valerie holds both a bachelor's degree in communications and a JD from Fordham University, as well as a master's degree in management and a certificate in organization development from the new school. Very educated. Very good. <laughs> awesome. So I just want to welcome you to the podcast, Riley. It's great to have you. Uh, thank you. I am so pleased to be here, especially on today, uh, Juneteenth, which holds significance for the work that, that we do at LISC and for me personally, obviously. So. Yes, we can finally say it's a great holiday. Yes, absolutely. But, yeah. you know, I you know, it's interesting. You know, I know some people who say, oh, you know, we, we didn't need the vindication. It was already something that we were celebrating. Uh, we don't need the recognition. Then I hear other people saying, no, you know, the fact that we got Republicans with their drama and Democrats with their drama to come together and, and do this uh, is definitely a sign of progress. Where do you stand on this? Well, I, I think it, it, um, it is a sign of progress, but uh, let's step back and think about it historically, right? Um, this was a significant day in our history. And even uh, this particular day, I think the s- slaves had already been free, but nobody told them, right? They found out. Right, in Galveston, uh, Texas. They were made, yeah. found out on June, uh, June 19th. But um, our history is uh, stands on um, inequities, uh, uh, segregation, separation, and the, um, you know, the fact that um, people of color, in particular black people, have always been at a, a lower uh, level in terms of uh, uh, access to freedom and equity and education and all of those things. So I think that this is significant, yes, for Republicans and Democrats to come together, but it's also historically significant for our country to actually uh, archive and formally recognize that this was uh, a part of our country, a part of our history that makes our country what it is, but something that we have to talk about, um, you know, if we're going to be an equitable society. 
Interesting. And that word equity, I think, is a hot button word today. I don't know why it is. It really shouldn't be. When I was in graduate school and I learned the difference between equality and equity, it seemed like something that was pretty simple, something that everybody can get on board with. Right. It's like, you know, you, you can't necessarily have equality without equity. Sometimes you, you, you do need to compensate for past grievances. Uh, you need to compensate for things like colonialism, things like slavery. Um but you also need to account for disparities. But some people right. say um, disparities occur because of the people that are disparate, right? That it's their responsibility. Um, and that equity really is racist, right? I, mm-hmm. I, I've, I've, I've heard the conservative yeah. punditry go on about how equity is uh, disenfranchising to those who are not focused by that equity. Uh, what do you what do you what do you say in retort to that? Well, I think that if in fact um, we didn't have such a long historical, um, you know, history of ensuring that there was a separatism and in 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 equity in no separatism, uh, you know, uh, inequality, then we would be at a place of equity. And the issue is, is that it's systemic, right? Um, Mm -hmm. We know that from uh, research, from studies in terms of access to education, access to healthcare, access to housing, access to the ability to, um, you know, um, gain wealth and sustain wealth. The reason why you have such great gaps statistically in, um, you know, in black people, as well as the, you know, when you compare to the rest of society. And it's the same with, you know, some other, you know, groups of color is because there has been this system of, um, you know, uh, superiority for the most part uh, for for uh, non-minority people. So you can't get to equality um, if you get to equity. And yes, uh, it is for uh, people who are in the disparate, um, um, you know, part of what's of the equation to be able to go and 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 achieve that. But if you don't have access, how can you, right? So, right. Um, and it's systemic. So until we change the system to address inequities, um, then um, you know we're still going to be sort of cyclically in this pay in this place for quite some time. So, you know, that that's my, those are my thoughts. Yeah. Do you think that systems are still racist in this country? Oh, absolutely. I know it as a black woman. I mean, you know, um, um, there's actually a, an exhibit at the Guggenheim. I want to go see, um, but one of the pieces there, you know, it, it comes in all forms, whether it's microaggression or actual outward, um, you know, racist, but this piece, and I don't know the name of the artist, but she actually lists every single microaggression uh, statement that was said to her over her work career. Uh, me, I have a a, a a long work career. I'm working at List now and just very pleased to do that, particularly at this point. But I actually retired from Wall Street. I was a managing director at a firm. So and I did international business. So I was wow. I was fortunate enough to be able to gain, um, you know, certain and level. so you also have experience with oh, the system. Yes, That's yeah, the old absolutely. boy network. Absolutely. And not, you know, necessarily, you know, specifically in the firm, just moving in that industry as someone of color. No one ever thinks I was very mathematically, quantitatively inclined. Um, Mm -hmm. And everybody always seems, you know, assumes you're the secretary or if you are 
um, you know, a black woman of some sort of um, level in the organization is usually things like human resources or marketing, but not the actual, you know, making the of number the donuts, um, yeah. particularly when it comes to math. And it's nothing more with those other career paths. It's just right. an assumption of the boxes that we're put in. And that in and of itself, um, you know, makes it difficult to, to be to achieve. But of course, many of us uh, who have just continue to push you on. That's so interesting. I, 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 you know, this whole debate about equity and equality, I think, I think really a lot of people were doing the work for past maybe 30 years on really advancing equity, not just equality. And I think the place where I see so much disparity is in the housing market and in terms of building an infrastructure in black and brown neighborhoods that is sustainable, livable, and um, exciting, right? Mm. Uh, the movie Washington Heights just came out. Mm. And it, when you watch that movie, it's like, wow, why wouldn't I want to live there, yeah. right? It, like this, this seems like a great neighborhood. But I think if you mentioned um, some of the issues that go around with some neighborhoods like up in Upper Harlem or uh, maybe out here in Long Island and Uniondale and Hempstead, mm-hmm. yeah. um, you'd say, you know, what's really missing be- that you don't see missing in like a Glen Cove or like, a, mm-hmm. you know, Manhattan. And really it's, it's infrastructure. It's, it's making sure all the, the roads are great. It's making sure that the businesses are flourishing, making sure that you're, you're building new buildings, right? I see this every day. I'm a professor at CUNY uh, during my day job. Uh, mm-hmm. And what I see over there is they're starting to gentrify. Um, mm-hmm. They're building. They have some big building projects coming along right by your college. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I know what that means. That's going to raise prices and it's going to displace people. And how can we approach this rising tide of okay? You have the financial incentive of wanting to. Um, change these more dilapidated urban neighborhoods into sprawling youth centers, right? Where college kids are going to live, where post-college mm-hmm. kids are going to live, but then also caring about the people that this is going to displace. Well, I, uh, let me let me start with a couple of things. First of all, um, if we go back historically, right, on how, um, um, you know, development happened, and where housing was put for for black and brown people, um, it was it, uh, made uh, uh, in a separatist way. So to try to overcome that and so reintegrate it is very difficult. You mentioned you are from uh, Long Island, um, and I when I was younger, um, with my parents I, li- I lived in Freeport. I know that, and that was even that town has changed quite a bit from mm-hmm. when I was there. I was in in the '60s. I was a young child uh, at the time, yeah. but the history of Levittown, right? Right. Um, a person from Long Island, you know, it was built specifically for a specific group of people uh, to, mm-hmm. that looked a certain way. And then you had sort of the the um, services, the people who service those people lived in the areas around it. So you had that um, built in um, separatism. Uh, now, of course, we're looking. So how do you overcome that? Right. How do you go in and, and make those changes? So now, of course, we're seeing uh, what we call gentrification and that. And then also the, the word gentrification is, is problematic. Right. Because it means for the gentry. 
right? Right. Um, but it's really a you know a urban uh, development, and I you know I always wonder why is it taking um, people who are not not looking like people who live in a neighborhood for these things to be fixed because. You know, people who've lived there a long time, they want to go to the gym. They want to go to a restaurant. Mm-hmm. They want a, a nice place to live. So the two things should, shouldn't should be, um, you know, mutually exclusive. If a neighborhood go, undergoes urban revitalization, it should be um, looked at in terms of, you know, what is uh, the existence of that particular segment of the urban commons and why it, it looks that way. Um, I think that when we think about building communities, particularly with things like urban planning and the like, you know, with some um, zoning in New York, uh, you get there's there's benefits uh, if you're bringing the, the fair market rent to a higher level or you bring so you get more things, you know, more access to the subway, more parks. It's those type of laws we need to look at and understand that it has to be, you know, intertwined in existing neighborhoods and um, actually utilizing the uh, opportunity to have folks in place. So, you know, the structure of affordable housing, how it's built, how it's developed or rehabilitated, uh, the whole segments of 80, 20, 80% market, 20% affordable housing to induce developers to come in is just simply not sufficient enough. And then we look at what's happening with public housing, Um, even in the country, the infrastructure bill, the amount that was, um, you know, given or or set aside by the conference, uh, by the Congress, right, to improve uh, public housing across the country uh, was only sufficient enough to touch on with the needs of New York City. So we as a society have to really step back and think about, you know, not the, not like sort of these Band-Aids to fix the, the structure of affordable housing or, or how it's built, but think about it as a community development and urban commons and the right of, mm-hmm. of everyone uh, to have affordable housing, to have access to transportation, to have right. access to quality food, that it right. has to be all inclusive in, in the planning process. And that has to come through legislation. Yeah, I, I think people are starting to uh, get hip to that, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 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 the urban community, that the power of legislation. I think mm-hmm. there was a time where there was kind of a malaise about the power and the effectiveness mm-hmm. of government. Mm-hmm. But it's really the only way you can really get things done set in stone. Right. Um, besides, you know, private investment. Um, but you know, the problem I think that I see is that. Um, you know, I like what you say the word urban commons, right? Mm-hmm. Because some people don't consider themselves, you know, if a community has uh, got some crime or if it's got some, mm-hmm. obviously, some poverty issues, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if people are really seeing, like, no, this is our home. This is buy in, right? Mm-hmm. It's like if you've seen Washington Heights, uh, it's like people are dancing in the streets, feeling like mm-hmm. every bodega is a part of their family and every. A street corner is alive Mm. with uh, civilian uh, happiness and things like that. And we want that because I was just in the city last night um, meeting up with a friend. I went to the comedy cellar, saw some comedy. And on my way there in my Uber going down to the village, the city is alive with so many young people out feeling as if the city belongs to them 
the way they're standing in the street. You can just check their posture, the way they're standing in the street, the way they're sitting with each other, uh, the way they're just no fear with uh, being being out and about. And I've never seen this kind of um, shared sense of ownership um, in a way in, in, in so many communities that are being divested. And I just think that, you know, it, it, you recently did a survey, uh, if I'm not yeah, mistaken, yeah. right? Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And uh, then I also want to comment about what we're seeing in this reopening. Um, yeah. So um, uh, LISC NYC, we did a survey of uh, small minority businesses located in um, impacted neighborhoods. And when we say impacted, we mean the neighborhoods that are primarily black, brown, immigrant, um, uh, mm-hmm. not neighborhoods of color. And then when you, you know, for all of us that are either living or familiar with New York City, we know we are a microcosm, right, of a lot of different neighborhoods. And that's what makes up the city uh, as a whole. And, and, it's, and that makes it a rich cultural city, right? Um, and when you add that to sort of the, um, you know, the, the, the tourists or entertainment hubs or the, the hubs with corporate um, headquarters, that's why what makes New York so unique. But most of the, you know, uh, communities that we work in at LISC and, and the, the folks that filled in the survey, the businesses are located in that microcosm of, um, you know, uh, very culturally rich neighborhoods. But it, but it's a little scary because as we're seeing, and you mentioned the city starting to come back, people out, the comedy set, uh, cellars open. Uh, I'm a Brooklyn girl, so the Nets are like on their way. At least we hope so, right? Game seven tomorrow. <laughs> and they, right. they kind of faded out early, which it wasn't a surprise to us. Brooklyn Was that an easy also. transition for you? Were you once a Knicks fan and then you transitioned? And no, I always liked um, uh, the Nets a little bit better. The Nets, well, okay. I mean, I'll be honest. The, the Knicks, I, when they let didn't let Patrick you and finish his career then then mm. I was done but I'm from the Patrick Ewing Charles Oakley Anthony uh, Mason Chris Charles with the neck thing yeah the, yes. those were my Knicks the ones yes. after that they just you know kind Charlie of Charlie Ward Derek Charlie Harper Ward, yes. yeah, yeah exactly that 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 was the time um okay. but um so we're all we're excited right Broadway's right. gonna reopen the opera's gonna reopen and I like everyone enjoy those things so a lot of attention is being paid to that and sort of coming away Right. From the um, what was happening in the communities that we live in, less, you know, much more death, much more sickness, no access to testing, no access to vaccine at the same levels that you were seeing in other cities. And in fact, if you remember when the vaccines came out, people from neighborhoods that were not well, going to the, 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 you know, the marginalized communities to get their vaccines. So the businesses, which are generally the anchor of those communities, and when you think about it, you think about commercial quarters, you mentioned Queens, like, you know, uh, Jamaica Avenue or um, in um, Harlem, 125th Street, um, in South Bronx, like 3rd Avenue or West Avenue here out in Brooklyn, Fulton Street. Those are commercial quarters and they are, are essential to the neighborhoods that, uh, you know, um, had much more disparate um, circumstances in general, right? You know, uh, but the COVID just pulled the curtain back and exacerbated that, um, you know, attention to that. And of course we had racial injustice. So to get quickly back to the survey, um, we surveyed um, businesses in that area. 90% of them feel like if they don't get immediate relief, that they're gonna be closed in six months. 
And there's a myriad of, um, you know, government release. Uh, the state just um, put out and uh, worked with another community-based organization, $800 million statewide, right, to address the, the issue of small businesses, micro-businesses. Um, there's the, uh, you know, another large uh, pocket of money coming from the federal government. So there is that opportunity, but it, but it is, you know, a, sort of a flash in the pan when you think about it statewide or even what's going on in New York City. So we work really closely with community-based nonprofits that are located in that very community to help, you know, match grant money. We, we did some private philanthropic you know, grant um, funding to 112 businesses in 16 communities that we carefully selected. We looked right. to see, you know, who had the, the most job loss? Where were the businesses most impacted? Where was COVID, uh, you know, um, in terms of just um, everything, you know, testing, positive results, uh, people having to still go to work because they couldn't afford or didn't have the means to stay home. Where was the digital divide? So we chose those 16 neighborhoods. We gave sub-grants uh, from our own balance sheet to uh, community organizations that had economic development programming. Uh -huh. And then uh -huh. we, um, you know, had them, um, you know, disperse the grants to businesses that they identified uh, uh, of course, that needed the money, but that were going to be amenable to long term relationship and business viability and sustainability. So we are, we are approaching it as a cohort uh, program. And so we have our first hundred and twelve. Uh, we get those that, you know, we opened that program up uh, last summer, but we're still in relationships with many of those businesses uh, to help them for the long term. And indeed, just did a press conference on Tuesday at one of the business locations out on Tompkins Avenue in Brooklyn. But if you don't have that sort of comprehensive grant money plus technical assistance plus advocacy to the government approach, then we're going to, you know, lose uh, these businesses in these neighborhoods. And have a bunch of Chipotle's or Starbucks that you know take sure, the sure. take the place of uh, these small businesses. Yeah. So I gotta ask, how come I've never heard about this? Right. Uh, my my whole my whole issue is, uh, you know, I come from a, a line of uh, of black businessmen and women in my family, people who struck out on their own, and whether they were contractors or they worked on Wall Street or. Um, you know, they had, a, they had their own taxi, mm -hmm. um, people who are entrepreneurially spirited. And, and whenever I'm surfing the MSNBCs and the CNNs and maybe even a little bit of Fox News, I, I don't hear anyone talking about what you're doing, your organization and organizations like it and how you're being effective. You're putting money into places where people don't assume money is going to um how can we change the perspective mm. of black and brown mm. investment and, I, and by that i don't just mean business i mean like companies uh, organizations like yours uh investing back in the community mm. how, how, how can we change that perspective so that someone like me some schmo like me you know i i, mm. I find out about you well, first of all, I, I, I am, uh, you know, very grateful that uh, you invited me to be on the show because just messaging, you know, is one of the things that that we do need to do, uh, not just uh, as a as our our organization, but as a community of community development, economic development, the industry as a whole. 
Um, because, you know, really people don't, you know, we don't really want to hear, right, about what's happening when you talk about to go back to inequities and separatism that we were talking about earlier. And again, you think about our country is always when something happens then all of a sudden people, you know, want to um, acknowledge publicly. And when I say people, I mean our society, right? Acknowledge publicly what we all kind of know it's happening. And it's, 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 um, you know, cyclical. You go back to the civil rights era. Everyone knew there was Jim Crow. Everyone knew people weren't voting. Everyone knew there was separate schools. Um, but you know, you can, as a society, we were saying, right, oh, that's terrible and going about our, our business as Americans. It wasn't until television, right? And you're a professor, you know, when television hit and people can actually look and see, right? The dogs and the hoses and what have mm-hmm. you, did you start to see some change? So we, we right. you know, gained a little bit, got the Human you know, Rights Act and, you know, all the acts that happened. And then we kind of just faded back into, you know, sort of, um, you know, yes, we think, you know, racism is terrible, but not having to look at it. Uh, the next time where we looked at it a little bit more was Rodney King, right? Because you couldn't turn away. He was getting beat up by everybody while he was tethered. And it became a subject of conversation again. Then it faded back away. All right. Eric Garner, everyone watched it. Um, him, you know, but even there, you know, um, if one wanted to, um, and I mean society by one, wanted to justify it, big dude, tiny cops, you know, it's a shame, right? But, you know, we heard about Trayvon Martin. We didn't have to see it. We heard about Sandra Bland. It was terrible. We didn't have to look at it as a society. So between the pandemic, right, and then George Floyd, where you just couldn't, there was nothing else, no other explanation except somebody nailed on his neck for, um, you know, almost nine minutes and he died. So it became something that we talked about. Um, a little bit about LISC. LISC is about 40 years old. We actually started in the South Bronx when uh, Jimmy Carter had came up and saw the condition of the South Bronx at the time. And then the subsequent, um, mm. you know, he started the process, but the subsequent presidential and mayoral administration started LISC and the concept of community development, having communities being part of and having a say in uh, their revitalization. Uh, the organization is 40 years old. We are a national nonprofit. We're also a community development financial institution, a CDFI. So we actually loan to um, organizations, developers, um, nonprofits that are developing, redeveloping the community. We have 37 affiliates across the country now. I am executive director of the one at New York City. But this, you know, activities are happening all across the country, um, you know, in terms of community development and have been. Um, and you're right. People don't really know that much about LISC unless you are part of a development or you got funding or you got a loan. But I do think over the last year, um, we, um, as a national organization, received a lot of funding. So we got money from Verizon. And when Alicia Keys was on the Super Bowl, it was going toward uh, the government grants. And um, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the, the philanthropic grants through LISC. Um, we had a series with Live Nation and, you know, Chance the Rapper and Dave Matthews Band. And uh, so we started to get a little bit of, you know, national um, you know, rec- uh, recognition. People knew who we were by recognition, but the talk about community development was national. 
now we're, you know, guilt, you know, our American societal guilt is very fleeting. So you see now no one is talking about, you know, some of these inequities. We had George Floyd's trial is over. And now we're sort of fading back into that um, complacency state. And um, so it, it, it's up to um, journalists like yourself and others uh, and, and us uh, community um, development um, professionals to be sure that we're constantly out talking about this uh, before we go back into this uh, state of inequity. Mm-hmm. I feel like everything you said was so powerful. I just, I just <laughs> you got to soak it all in, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, my uh, specific degree when I got my master's uh, was in sustainability. And um, particularly sustainability, looking at environment, but also looking at economics. Um, and we took economics uh, 101 uh, uh, for my class. And what I what I really noticed is I, I'm fascinated by the secret sauce that developers have. I, I, w- I want to know what makes LISC successful. What what is your strategy? What is your motto? What is your outlook when you go into community or into a business and you say, "Okay, this is how we differentiate ourselves as investors and what we look for and how we know how to be successful." Because it's got to be a hard job. I mean, I've seen in my lifetime and I haven't been alive for that long, but uh, I've seen long enough that I've seen communities really improve in, in some areas. I've also seen communities change drastically demographically. Uh, mm. What what do you what do you, what's your secret sauce? Well, it, it, yes. Well, we're you know uh, um, we're an intermediary, so we raise capital and then we invest it in the various communities to help that right. sustainability. But we are looking for very specific. Uh, type of, um, you know, investments to make. Um, So as you stated, you know, we're looking to see what is the fabric of the community? Where's the support coming? Um, How can we help build through technical assistance with the nonprofits, working with the faith-based institutions, working with the elected uh, officials representing a particular area? How do we look to ensure that we are investing in a community that is um, going to be a stand on, um, you know, just economic uh, equality. And that means a number of things, right? Affordable housing is the foundation of a strong community. So we need to be sure that we are investing in projects that um, are are providing affordable uh, places for community members to live. But you have to tie that with all the ancillary amenities that are make a community strong. And that's education, is healthcare, is workforce development, right? Because you can live somewhere, but if you can't get to healthcare, the transportation isn't good, or you don't have a, a job. And when we look at uh, how we work with workforce development, it's not necessarily, you know, with organizations that help people get a job as like a security guard or a janitor, and, and then they're done. Now, there's nothing wrong with those jobs and they're fine, but it should be a stepping stone or, uh, um, you know, up into growing um, you know, uh, career opportunities that in turn grow wealth, right? Uh, we are looking at, um, you know, whether or not um, where we're investing also um, has a strong commercial quarter. And if it doesn't, how do we convene, 
right? And, and collaborate with the members of the community to build that commercial quarter because those small businesses that I talked about earlier that are in danger, that's about 98% of the, of the job market in these neighborhoods. They provide right. jobs. They provide a sense of culture. You know, you go up and down 125th Street, there's there's businesses that have been there for generations. Sylvia being one, uh, Sylvia's, right? Um, uh, an identity to the community. Um, you know, we had another business, Grand Champ, out in uh, Brooklyn in Bed-Stuy. Um, we were able to get them a grant. And not only did they provide jobs, but with that grant, uh, their connection to the community, they actually were um, providing um um, you know, um, services um, for 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 therapy and counseling for their employees during the time when Black Lives Matter was such a you know um, a trying time. It still is, but you know to help their employees get through so that they can continue to um, you know support the community economically and keep the business open. So when you see these small businesses. Um, that are in these commercial quarters that bring that valuable economic strength to a community. They also are part of the, the family of that community. So you have to tie the housing, the healthcare, the workforce development, the economic development together because you have that sense of, uh, you know, um, uh, dynamic support that is within the community. So it's really important. So that's the type of work that we look to do and uh, try to ensure that even in, there may be some communities that are looking for us to invest. And if all elements are not there, we're going to find the other parts of that, right? To ensure there's a holistic, um, you know, approach to community development in the places that we work. Let's say I was a small business owner. How could I reach out to you? How could I connect with you? Uh, Small business owners can uh, connect with us via our website, which is list L-I-S-C, dot org org uh, forward slash nyc new york city and on the website there's a host of information is um information about the different surveys that we do the various you know news outlets and stories we host a series of webinars um that uh, provide information to nonprofits and small businesses when we do have you know open up our grant um, um funding um, we uh, want to be sure that we are getting that information out to all of the you know potential businesses. Um, I will say, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, I'd like to be sure that people are clear when we do our grants, um, we get our philanthropic investment, we set up the program, and we get the money out quickly. So now we're raising uh, for the next set of uh, cohort for the business. So the minute it's open, we want to be sure any um, small business has uh, opportunity to apply for that. So uh, they can get on our website uh, to find information. And there is uh, email nycinfo um, at list, org, and um, writing us. We'll be sure that, you know, any small business that's interested is on our mailing list and we'll be notified immediately when we uh, set up our ne- and open up our next round of grants. OK, that's great. So for any small business man or woman uh, hearing that, got to take this opportunity. It yes. sounds great. Yeah, it really does. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I've been uh, hearing you talk. I've just come up with so many questions, but I, I think mm-hmm. one question I've always had um just a little bit about myself. Uh, my dad worked on Wall Street. My mother is a small business owner. In fact, uh, mm-hmm. my mother uh, started the company, the media company that 
this podcast now works for. Mm-hmm. Um, the TTW Associates, uh, the New York trend and, and whatnot. And, you know, I didn't think it was not, it was abnormal that my, my parents were in the financial sector mm-hmm. uh, growing up. Um, but I, as I grew up, I realized that it, it is somewhat rare to see people who come from an urban community. My dad comes from Hollis. My mother is from uh, Jamaica, 200 Street in Jamaica, uh, mm-hmm. Queens. And really, they saw that the only way for them to elevate them, their status was to go into business because obviously the money incentive. But that was a cultural thing that they got from their parents. Um, do you think that there's a gap in the black and brown community, the urban community, where people are – do you think fine people are, are – are, things are changing, people are becoming more – entrepreneurial or do you think still people don't always see that as the option for their career and for their life? I think in general, we're becoming a much more entrepreneurial society, right? Um, So I look at my parents. So my dad's an MSW. He went to to CUNY uh, for his Mm -hmm. master's. Him and my mom, they they met as freshmen at Brooklyn College and they're about to celebrate their 65th wedding anniversary uh, on July 7th. They actually went to Florida about 20 something years ago. Uh, So, but they, but they had careers in, in um, human services, uh, both of, both of them. Um, I, um, I, but you know, that was an era where you were like the company person, right? So they worked for, um, you know, um, government or in a nonprofit, um, but you stayed with that, 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 you know, sort of career track and you didn't kind of move around. Um, I'm from that era also, but a little bit different. It was okay that you made the switch. So, you know, the early part of my career, I was at city, uh, worked for city government for 13 years. And then I spent 18 years on Wall Street um, working there. And even when I made that move, I was kind of like, well, should I do this? You know, oh, my gosh, blah, blah, blah. But I knew that it was, uh, um, you know, a good move. And it did turn out to, you know, be, um, you know, I, I got financial security for myself and for my daughters. But I was also working in affordable housing, economic development, whatever side that I felt, you know, um, on, a, in a international, on an international scale. So I was happy that I was able to stay with that. Um, now though, sort of the generation behind me, um, I see that people are staying at jobs, you know, two years, four years or whatever, which was a, a horror on me. It used to be like, well, they can't keep a job. Now you stay long. It's like, they, you, nobody can find a job, right? You know, cause you're staying too long, but, um, the workforce in and of itself is getting that sort of, um, um, you know, disciplined experience. And then people are opening up their own things. So entrepreneurism is just part of the workforce, whether it's consulting or, you know, businesses or products or retail or the a media company. Um, and we're right for that because we're much more virtual with, you know, um, you know, bigger companies are scaling down their balance sheet and uh, farming out only when they need certain type of services. So that's where we're moving anyway. So as black and brown people, Right. We need to be working with our younger population, our you know next generation to let them know that this is how you are able to grow that wealth. This is right. how you are able to have that access to the you know, longer term, you know, sustainable wealth. 
Um, and we talk about that at list. Uh, our national um, footprint has a, a program called Project 10X. And Project 10X is basically um, setting some investment that we're putting nationally into different programming, but also looking specifically for programming that will close that the gap between, um, you know, black wealth and, and white wealth, black access and white access, black home ownership and white home ownership, education and the like. So um, this is part of what we're doing at LISC nationally, um, you know, conceptually. But we have to say that this is the road, right, to be in a place of equity in terms of wealth uh, generation and sustainability. And that is, is entrepreneurship. So this is a program that we're instituted. It was the brainchild of our, our former president, uh, Maurice Jones, um, who's now at a program called 110. But this is this is the the way that we as black people can have that sort of independent entrepreneurship and building that that wealth, um, you know, uh, while we're being, you know, uh, available and part of, you know, society's uh, economic base. So, yes, it is changing and it's an opportunity for all of us. Well, again, blown away by this work that you do. It's it's just it's it's just so fascinating because you know I, I grew up with two parents that always were pushing me to say be mm -hmm. entrepreneurial, go out, mm -hmm. do something, right? Um, you know, and if you're not making any money at it at first, keep it going, keep it rolling, right? Start the podcast or something like that, or, or a book, mm -hmm. or all these other avenues of making money, and generational wealth was always something where mm -hmm. uh, it was like this uh this thing that was so fragile that if you whispered it it would crumble right yeah. and it's just mm -hmm. it's just you don't we, we, you're not taught it in public school you're not taught it in school right about mm -hmm. how to accrue that you know what how do you create an estate uh how do you uh create a trust fund how do you create a company mm -hmm. or uh LLC how do you protect yourself legally uh, th these these are things that, uh, unfortunately, we are not taught at a practical level. A and particularly in the urban community, you don't see the same generational wealth. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I, I hope in the future what, what happens in the urban community is that people just change their mindset or, or mm -hmm. continue to grow with this mindset of not being afraid of saying, I want to create generational wealth. I don't think that's a bad thing. I want to be an investor. I want to, because with investment, with money in a capitalist society, in a capitalist world, you can make change. You can affect things because people at the end of the day, they mostly care about the bottom line. Yeah. I mean, it's the reason why, um, uh, uh, he, I forget his name, but he wrote this book called Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun? Uh, <laughs> the first black billionaire. Uh, oh, he was. Um, Reginald Lewis? Reginald Lewis, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And I read his book. My dad got me his book when I was a kid and I read it. And mm -hmm. I just thought it was so bold. And, and, and his message really was, it's, you know, it's okay to think of money as something that you can really effectuate the, the kind of change in lifestyle that 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 you want for others too it's not just about mm -hmm. yourself you mm -hmm. know if you if you make a billion dollars you have a lot of assets to, and connections to play with to really uplift mm -hmm. um other people uh, I, I don't like i don't like what what i see sometimes 
in particularly in the younger community, this kind of aversion to money that that somehow money is evil and Ooh, those that make it are evil Ooh. and that you're a sellout, you, <laughs> right, a sellout yeah. buyers, uh, survivors remorse. Uh, have you ever tackled that? Have you ever been uh, tackled that in your life where people were kind of ridiculing you for saying? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, still now, uh, even even doing this is like, well, you know, you spend all that time on Wall Street, da, 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 with the man, right? <laughs> like, right, you know, right. Doing what, right? We, we need to be in. We need to be in it to make those changes, and right. you know but that's okay. But we sort of have like a a, a, a wide. Uh, spectrum, right? In our communities, we have those, and, you know, and frankly, there are some people that are, you know, that look like us that are out in Wall Street and they, and they, you know, they even have a different voice, right? You know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and if we're all working there, I've been working there with people and, you know, working at his duties, you know, to, oh, yes, so, 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 right? right. You know, <laughs> and then when I saw him after, he's like, Woo, now I don't have to use that voice anymore. I had breaks my entire time at Wall Street. So, you know, I just do, I, I made, you know, I made the company money, I made my money. So I could be myself. So they just said I was eccentric, right? right but there was right. an expectation that you acted a certain way. I I was I didn't wasn't under that ex- expectation because I was a high performer. But everybody, you know, there were other people who were. So right. you got that. Then we have our other part of the society, right? Um, and remember, we've been socialized as a people that um, acquiring wealth is material things. The, the, the best car, the, the, the best sneakers, the best whatever. So it, and that was done purposely, right? There was a purpose to that so that we could spend our money making other people uh, uh, rich, but we had stuff, right? So you have this sort of wide um, disparity. So it's up to us as a community to talk about this, to offer, right? Um, you know, these different perspectives to say, you know, um, um, going out and making money and reinvesting it in, in, in yourself. Right. Because right? Mm-hmm. you don't want that wide disparity. But also, you know, giving back in your community. We have that responsibility because nobody else is going to do it for people of color. Right. So we have to continue to have these conversations and think about ways to ensure that we're doing it in, in a, a real strategic fashion. That's so interesting. Um, you know, I I, I think um, when when I when I think of um, what you're saying, it's it's like there there used to be so many people that I think were trying to um, change black solidarity, and maybe even in the Hispanic community, this functions a similar way. Or in the Asian community, or mm-hmm. any anyone who's particularly urban, the Jewish community as well. Right. Mm-hmm. This this sense that solidarity meant radicalism or revolutionary right. type mm-hmm. of ideals, right? Like communism or mm-hmm. socialism and things like that. Mm-hmm. Totally reimagining society. But what I liked about this movie, uh, it, it, it's um, uh, one night in Miami. Uh, I don't know if you if yes, you saw that. Yes, with so, um, um, I, the story of Malcolm X and Muhammad yes, Ali, yeah. Sam Cooke, and um, I forgot who the fourth. Um, Jim Brown. Jim Brown. Yes. Yeah. So right there, you have four leading individuals in the black community, mm-hmm. and they're all sharing their perspectives on what makes them successful. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And for Malcolm X, he's talking about total revolution, right? Mm-hmm. A total reimagining of society, uh, particularly for black people. But Sam Cook is the one that I related to the best because mm-hmm. he's the one that I see as cannot be co-opted and stands out as someone who probably effectuated the most financial change out of any of them. Oh, Malcolm yes. X, yeah. the, the, the tragedy that ended with Malcolm X's life in the end was was sad based on mm-hmm. all accounts that we know mm-hmm. of um, in terms of how he's effectively betrayed within and um, mm-hmm. murdered, right? But mm-hmm. look what happened to his image. This is something that Eddie Glaude, a professor of mine, said when I was in college. He said, look at his image, right? Look what they've done. They've taken him, they made him postage stamp, right? They've mm-hmm. taken this, they made him what's called pastiche. Right. Right? They're taking this revolutionary figure who did not care about what certain people thought about him. He mm. was dead serious when he meant, you know, black separation and black uh, mm. nationalism and all that stuff. And now he's he's you can wear him on a T-shirt. You know, a, a mm. private school white kid can wear him on a T-shirt. Mm. Um, it's the way that he's become commodified and reimagined so that even you have conservative pundits like Tucker Carlson quoting him. Mm. Right. Because Tucker Carlson liked how Malcolm X talked about the white liberal. Right. So now Tucker Carlson gets to go up Malcolm right. X. Yeah. And you're like, these two things should not go together. Yeah. Right. But Sam Cooke was talking about how he invested in with his songs. He can he can just give a song to a singer, a black singer. Mm. And once that singer sings it, they're part of the writing royalties. Right. And then once a white person sings it and makes it number one, yeah, you know what? We don't like that. We don't like that a black singer can't be number one, that a, that a white singer singing a black song can go number one. But you know what? You know who they makes the most money? They're yeah. gonna, exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's another thing that Muhammad Ali also talked about, too, not in the movie, but he says this in real life. He says, look, Jewish people were not allowed in Miami Beach uh, like for for decades. But you know what they did? They basically bought up Miami Beach and now they can do whatever they want. They want, yeah. Right? And it's it's financial power that really moves the needle. Mm-hmm. And I wish there was there was some way that we could uh get that notice out, get get that out there to people that mm-hmm. it don't be afraid of of making money and putting on a suit and tie and going to Wall Street and working there for 18 years mm-hmm. and saying, you know what, there's problems here, but the problems are not going to get fixed if I don't join it. Right. Right. We, yeah, we have to be part of it and we have to be influential in it. And we have to um, bring that, um, you know, op- those opportunities of influence back to our communities and then be strategically collective, forming uh, coalitions and collaborations to to address it. So I, uh, very powerful stuff. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on, Valerie White. It was so yeah, great to talk to you. It was great to meet you. Congratulations on your show. And I will definitely be tuning in on the regular. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll thank get a you. chance to chat again. Yes, yes. We'll definitely have you back on. There's so many things to talk about, so many avenues to go with. Mm -hmm. And you were a great guest. And if you have any last words for our audience, uh, go ahead. You know, I just want to remind us, um, our communities, to just stay vigilant to some of the inequities. I know, Justin, right before we popped on, I was talking about, um, you know, and again, these things sort of 
happen under the radar. So we have to pay attention. So there seems to be a trend of litigation um, from conservative groups um, in relation to relief efforts that are happening for, um, you know, people who have suffered more um, because of COVID um, and generally that's minority communities. One was from the, um, you know, federal government, small business administration, giving preference to minority businesses for relief grants and that there was an injunction. So that was stopped. So businesses that were waiting to pay rent arrears or whatever, you know, right. it's a small portion of them because they gave, had given out quite a bit of the money, but now that that money won't flow. So once the thing, you know, the, the case is litigated, that may be years from now, but that business is closed. Uh, another similar one, uh, you know, New York State had been given um, um, a, a law to give $15 to uh, low income families uh, who did not have the same access to broadband so that they can afford it. Um, the um, broadband companies put an injunction on that saying that the, the federal government had a, a program with $50 uh, for low-income families. Uh, only 127,000 families in New York State took advantage of it. But you know how they're telling everybody? On the internet, right? So if you right. don't have the internet, then how are you going to know that you can get the $50? And so right. there's an injunction there. Uh, there was one in Oregon, PPP loans for set aside for minority business injunction there stop. So we're going to start to see a trend of these legal cases. And as a community, we just need to, to pay attention. Right. Um, and, you know, um, injunctions stop things in their tracks. And when we're at this critical point of recovery where there was such a wide disparity of impact, if uh, relief isn't get, uh, you know, gotten to um, low income people or minority businesses, the gap is just going to be irreparable and we're and we won't be able to recover from uh, this pandemic. So people just should be paying attention to that and uh, voicing their opinion as to, um, you know, um, how that how that will impact our communities overall in the immediate and then the long term. So I want to leave you all. Very true. Very true. Call to action. (laughs) Yes. We we should always leave with a call to action. It should always be, as a boss of mine once said, actionable items. Yes. Should always be actionable items that you leave with. My my dad also said it's like uh, leaving on a good note on the basketball court. Never leave the basketball court when you're done practicing without hitting the last jump shot. Yes, Don't right. leave with yeah. him on a miss. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. But thank Wonderful. you so thank much. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. And remember, Trenders, we are better when we trend together. Mm-hmm. We will be back. Remember to find us on Apple. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us wherever podcasts are found now. Like, subscribe, share, talk about it, discuss, tweet, all those great things. All right, we'll see you next time.